on the record on News Talk. Good morning, this is Kieran Goodhue with you until one o'clock with News Talks on the record. If you want to get in touch, 53106 is the text number that will cost you 30 cent. Or as always, you can get me on Twitter at Kieran Goodhue. We've coming up, uh, lots to come, should I say, in the next uh, couple of hours here in the show. We're going to start with our panel, though, who've been going through some of the stories in today's Sunday papers. Joining me this week, Sinead O'Carroll, news editor with the journal.ie, Siobhan Masterson, head of corporate affairs at IBEC, and Jared Howe, an Irish examiner, columnist, public affairs consultant, and former senior political advisor. You're all very welcome good morning good morning good morning uh, we're going to run through just the, the headlines for people at home who haven't uh, seen the papers yet uh, the Sunday Independent leads with uh, Trump Trump won't suck jobs out of Ireland uh, Dervin MacDonald has an interview an exclusive interview with Kevin Hassett who's chairman of the Council of Economic Advisors uh, one of Trump's top economic advisors uh, we'll get back to that in a little more detail later in the show the Sunday Business Post leads with government to overhaul property tax rates to avoid steep hikes ahead of the election new plan aims to have homeowners pay roughly the same as under the old system. The Irish Mail on Sunday leads with Fine Gael accused of weasel words on housing. For four years, Leo and his senior ministers have spun the same line, but they won't tackle the crisis. Say Fianna Fáil, of course. And the Sunday Independent say landlords face ban on Airbnb lets in Dublin. Uh, we will come back to that as well. We'll come back to the Sunday Times UK edition. Uh, their headline is UK government in civil war over dirty dossier on Boris Johnson. <laughs> Plenty of Boris Johnson stories in the paper, which we'll come back to. Uh, the Sunday Times sports section, though, I'm going to read out now as well. We will uh, talk about this in more detail later in the show with Richie McCormick and George Gilroy are going to be in here talking about various sporting stories over the weekend. But they have on the front page of the sporting sports section, Serena Williams with the uh, headline, You're a liar and a thief and it's a quote Serena's amazing rant at umpire costs her US Open crown and Grand Slam record um, she lost last night to Naomi Osaka 6-2-6-4 in straight sets uh, but got into it with the uh, umpire Carlos Ramos uh, Sinead you might talk us through this because a lot of people I suppose some people would have watched this a lot of people would have woken up to this yeah. you know, or maybe kind of checked this morning who won that match last night and uh, and be reading about it what happened exactly? Well I'd kind of take issue maybe with the subhead on that Sunday Times it said cost her the US Open crown she was actually losing and Naomi Osaka was playing really good tennis and, and Serena herself admitted to that afterwards she played great tennis so I'm not sure um, I think it was more the opposite way that uh, the, the fact that she was losing and playing an opponent who was well able for her may have led to some of the frustration so she's down one set she's playing in the second set um, she gets a violation because her coach sent her a signal so y- you'll often see the coaching boxes you'll see coaches giving hand gestures or, or whatever they're not actually allowed to do that so it's a rule coaches are not allowed to gesture if it's seen by the player so this is kind of where maybe the first who's mm. in the right who's in the wrong question comes up if Serena actually received that coaching then it is a violation and the, the referee was correct to call that so that was her first violation she got that um, she was obviously unhappy about it um, she actually thought that it was reversed that she, when she went up to the umpire and said I didn't get any coaching I didn't see it um, whatever whatever she actually thought he reversed it he didn't so when she then went on and she broke her racket in frustration at her own play um, and she gave it a fairly hefty thump against the ground which again we do see quite often yeah. in tennis we'll actually hear that first exchange now
though she didn't get her apology, but she thought that it had been reversed and then when she realised as you said smash the racket yes yeah, so, well no she didn't so that it kind of ended at that okay. point yeah so and it, she she wasn't happy then obviously after that point and she had been you know crossing over and back and she had she had been kind of n- not happy Ram- Ramos the umpire but then she she smashed the racket after the fifth game so it was a couple of games later she smashed the racket and she got another violation um, and that was her second violation so then she then she was realised that actually it was her second violation and she was she was cross again okay and then her third violation came almost immediately when because that escalated and that that's when she and that this is where the thief and a liar she said you took that point off me you're a thief and a liar so the two violations led to a point violation <coughs> point penalty and that's when she said you've you're you stole you stole a point off me you're a thief and you're a liar okay let's take a listen Crowd are not happy. But, yeah, well, it's a US Open. She's an American tennis player. So a game penalty, because of the third violation, she got a game penalty. So that's what she was saying wasn't fair. She actually lost a full game, which is incredibly rare in tennis. Oh, sorry. I thought she got maybe a point penalty and it was just the final point in the game. Tipped no. It up. no, she actually got a game penalty. Yeah, so because of the third violation. So she got the second violation after the racket was broken. And then because she called him a thief and a... Uh, liar that's when she got the third Ooh, violation okay. for abuse of the referee and that led to the game penalty which is inc- it is incredibly rare so you can see why she's frustrated there's a really good Slate article this morning you know all these uh, think pieces have already been written in mm. the US saying like nobody was in the right and like c- technically she did break rules but she broke rules that are not consistently refereed so obviously if you feel targeted then and she has consistently been targeted by tennis um, some of it racially biased from when she was younger some of it because tennis didn't like how she was bringing where she was bringing the women's game to now probably just because they they want new winners as most sports do if someone is you know at the top of the game for too long Um, so you can see why she feels targeted but then she did break the rules. <laughs> yeah. So it's hard to argue. You kind of get a sense that she broke, like she. it's easy to defend Ramos, the umpire, because like, as you said, like she broke the rules. But for I, I just noticed from a lot of the commentary this morning, it seems that most people are annoyed that she broke that kind of unwritten rule of kind of class and dignity that you're meant to show. That's kind of what people seem to be annoyed by. Yeah, definitely. The um, Some of the coverage afterwards is, is definitely sexist. Like I was listening to an Australian uh, t- TV station covering it today and they said she lost graciously or she lost without grace, which, which isn't true. Afterwards, when the crowd were booing Osaka, she told the crowd to stop booing and that Osaka had played really well and that she it was her first Grand Slam and she deserved the moment. Now, unfortunately, Naomi Osaka is never going to get that moment back um, and she was probably going to beat Serena anyway. Serena got to the final. She hasn't been in form and Osaka has been. So 
you know, it, it does take away from her first ever Grand Slam. And I think Serena realised that, but probably too late because she, it, she was does already she have a point the about the men's and women's game. A few people have said, like, there was, a, I, as you said, lots of think pieces. And there was one this morning, you know, uh, ec- former players and experts divided. And when I went to the list, it was Roddick, Marty Fish, Victoria Azarenka and Billie Jean King on yeah. Serena's side. And then it was Andrew Castle, Liam Brody and Richard Ings quoted on the other side. Yeah. I've waited more one way than the other. But. When Billie Jean King is on your side as well, I do, if you look back at, at some of the treatment that Serena Williams has gotten, you do understand why she does feel targeted. And you definitely sense that, like, how many times have we revered some of the men who get cranky? You know, we love Andy Murray that he's a bit cranky and he gets really, like, in the faces of referees at times. Djokovic does, even Federer, even when he, and he's, like, calmness personified a lot of the time on the court. He can get kind of in the face sometimes when there's a bad call. So I do think Serena Williams, and actually when you listen back to what she said, she's, extremely calm in some ways she doesn't curse and cursing is definitely something we see a lot on the tennis court and you do get violations but not game penalties um, or three in a row which is all kind of came from these cluster of incidents Um, so I flip flop a lot on Serena on a lot of things that happen I can see why she 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 thought of it as a sexist thing um, because the men do seem to get away with more of it and she says it straight away. It's not like she just went off court and thought, how am I going to defend this behaviour? She does have a, bit of a victim complex, though. Like you see it around doping as well, yeah, or anti-doping, It's, it's kind I of say. very similar to what she says on the anti-doping, but I, she does have reason to have a victim complex from all of the years of tennis being against her. And it, she just doesn't seem to be able to get over that in, in the way she does with a lot of other things that, that get thrown at her. Um but after maybe decades of playing in tennis and you're still not accepted by official tennis, even when you've won the crowd over, I think people need to remember now, say yesterday mm. when the US opened, the entire crowd is with Serena. That used to be the case. That When she started playing tennis, the whole crowd would be against her no matter who her opponent was because they didn't like her and Venus winning all the time. Yeah, look, this is a story we'll come back to uh, as well as the rest of the day's sporting action, including a look ahead to the Camogie All-Ireland a little bit later in the programme. But we want to move on to a story I mentioned. It's on the front page of the, the Sunday Times, the Irish edition. It's also the, the splash, the lead splash in the, the Sunday Times in the UK. And it is UK government and civil war over dirty dossier on Boris Johnson. Uh, the similar stories kind of on a lot of the, the, the front pages in the UK. Okay, the Mail on Sunday, Boris's suicide vest j- jibe at May amongst them. Uh, this is from an article he has that's printed as well inside the Mail on Sunday here, page 13. We have uh, strapped a suicide vest to ourselves and handed the detonator to Michel Barnier. Jared, if it wasn't so serious, you'd get great entertainment about the Conservative Party continuing to tear strips off themselves. Oh, it's it's rollicking you? stuff, um, <laughs> Kieran. I mean, the old-fashioned jibe about the difference between Labour and, uh, uh, and the Tories was that every... St- Tory scandal was about sex and every Labour scandal was about money and that certainly seems to be continuing. <laughs> um, I mean, this is partially old-fashioned compromise uh, that there was a dossier uh, brought together 4,000 words two years ago when Theresa May became a Tory party leader. It was put together by a man called Nick Hardgrave and there's no doubting that he did do this. Mm. He was then deputy head of Mrs. May's policy unit and he has since left that world to go into PR and he's with a company called Portland PR. So that's the origin of the document. Uh, What is less clear and there's no suggestion that Nick Hardgrave has circulated is who has circulated it. 
So there's two basically uh, uh, big charges here. One is the content of the document, which basically says that Boris is a cad at best uh, and a dangerous nut uh, because he's wandering all over the place at all hours of the day and night. But also then the other one is who has circulated this? Because if your hands are found or your mm. fingerprints are found on this, then it will be as damaging to you for having circulated it as to Boris for having yeah. uh, his uh, uh, private Because that's life. what I was wondering. Insofar as it may be accurate. Yeah. Uh, um, it, like if it, this was compiled while he was still in government and it, and it never leaked. The fact that it's leaked now, you know, from, from a political strategy point of view, is this an indication that there are those around Theresa May possibly who now see Boris as more dangerous that he's outside cabinet? Now is the time to hobble him? Well, interestingly, you were you used the word strategy. <laughs> when, when, when the temperature gets very hot, uh, strategy can go out the window. So just don't be sure there's a well thought out strategy behind this because somebody has done something stupid. Um, and, and who's behind it and who directed it. I mean, there's a brilliant uh, editorial in the Sunday Times today, which reminds me of something I think I heard long ago, but that the up-and-coming young Disraeli was told that his great rival Lord Palmerston had fathered another illegitimate child in his 70s. And he, Disraeli was urged to put this out. And he said, no, he would not, because if people realised the old man was still so virile, the country would rally <laughs> to him. Um, but that was when the electorate was much smaller and entirely male. So this is just getting dirty. I think it's part of a wide context inside the Tory party where, you know, the temperature is rising, the madness is, is increasing, uh, the divisions are deepening and the context of keeping this group of people together, running a country passed through a Brexit deal next spring becomes more and more difficult, if, if not unlikely. What did you make of uh, Boris's article in the in the Mail on Sunday? Today? Well, the use of language, like as you said, Kieran, suicide vest. Uh, he d- he's the not UK. using that la- no. that language accidentally. No, no, he he, he is going all out to get uh, to get Mrs May. He's going all out to position himself uh, as the victor in a scenario where she can't deliver any sort of Brexit, which the majority of the Tory Party w- will will accept. And uh, clearly, he he's gone rogue full time all out. If you want to take a kind of an Irish-centric positive view Mm. of it, you would say that he does in this indicate, despite what himself and David Davies and others would have tried to do immediately after the backstop agreement in December was to roll back on it and say, it's Mm. not really an agreement. It's kind of an agreement for an agreement. It's a bit of a, it doesn't really mean anything. Whereas in this article, Boris kind of says, oh no, this is a cast iron guarantee. Like that's the problem is that it's a cast iron guarantee. Well, he has admitted now out of office, was uh, they were reluctant to admit yeah. when he was in office that that backstop guarantee, you know, is a fundamental fact. Uh, it's something that Barnier and the European Union certainly seem very, very firm on, and on is an, an awful lot else pivots that is hugely important for the United Kingdom in terms of this Brexit deal, and it's 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 a petard that they're on and they can't seem to get off. But will he, which he will now use out of office after the event against the former Prime Minister with whom he shared fully collective responsibility. Uh, um, Siobhan, I guess in IBEC this is an issue as well that maybe not from the political point of view and uh, as Jared said, like again, great entertainment about watching them kind of tearing themselves apart that you must be looking on at with some no small degree of concern. 
certainly, yeah. I mean, I suppose uh, the politics, I mean, obviously business is interested in how it's going to be impacted, but the politics are so important to business around this because it's all about certainty or uncertainty or whatever the debate creates. Um, And I think, you know, one of the things you'll have noted from Irish business in particular is that actually they've been a little bit under the radar when, when these kind of big issues blow up. And that's a deliberate strategy. Um, because business is talking to each other about the impact and uh, on their supply chains and the impact of, say, for example, a hard Brexit. Uh, and they're also talking behind the scenes to the Irish government and, by the way, to stakeholders in the UK and, and Europe. So while business mightn't be to the fore in terms of the debate on Brexit publicly, you can be sure that they're working behind the scenes to make sure that that contingency plans are being put in place. And are those contingency plans, do they include stockpiling things? This is a great, they get great joy in the UK about covering this, you know, yeah. recommendations that businesses should start stockpiling everything, yeah. from, you know, medicine to milk. Yeah, and I, you know, I was I was looking at um, Patrick Coveney's speech uh, late last week um, on these issues. And, you know, I, I just don't think that's happening. Um, I do think, and, and, and I think... You don't think it's be- happening in the UK? No, I don't. No. And I, I, I think that there's a tendency to dramatise this uh, and we need to be really, really cautious about it. I think the issue is that companies are actually looking at things like supply chains, but they're not actually pouring huge resources into it yet. Yeah, they but they don't, probably don't have the infrastructure to actually stockpile a lot of these things. They don't, no. And so I think I think it's trying to find a balance between, on the one hand, uh, making sure that you have some kind of contingency planning in place, but on the other, not, you know, going the whole hog and waiting until the political situation unfolds. And that's why this kind of political development is so important that business track it. Um, but that said, look, you can look at the high politics around this. And the reality is, is that, you know, there are government officials uh, in the UK and Ireland and Europe uh, working out the details and the technicalities and you know I, f- I really don't believe that there will be a kind of a, a massive hard Brexit in the end that there will be enough of a uh, I suppose flexibility around transition periods and time pl- and, and timelines to make it uh, work for business. And November fudge? Yes. It just has to be like there's a source quoted in the Sunday Times um, saying like they know they're a year behind where they need to be and they can't catch up. Yeah. Like there's nothing that can be done between now and March 29th, 2019 to make sure that there's some kind of either hard Brexit or soft Brexit. There's just not enough time yeah. to, to hash out and they can't let a hard Brexit happen. So yeah, yeah. And, it's going to have know, to be multiple if, if you look back at the, the December agreement, which was again reiterated in March, there, there are just too many inter- shared interests at stake for an agreement not to be hammered out. Yeah. But I think that that transition period and the flexibility and timelines is probably the crucial piece and I can very much see that happening. And November fudge then. Sorry, Gerard. The is the the internal politics and Mm. personality clashes uh, inside the Tory uh, Conservative Party in the House of Commons. It's hard to see any fudge for which uh, a majority within it can be marshaled for. That's the problem. Uh, An extension, uh, we're not leaving completely like I, I whatever the, way they, they the, phrase these, it the, the Reesmog brigade you know I, I think they will pull the plug on anything that's not do you think he'll document the fact that it's riddled with so many mistakes even though we, we haven't seen it yet but we've already heard does that damage him at all or do people just oh, not no. even care about oh, that absolutely yeah. not look at the Trump facts, phenomenon come on, yeah, yeah, sorry, facts. I, mean, sorry I forgot myself this, there this for a minute all, <laughs> this is all post fact you know uh, Trump in the United States 80-90% approval ratings among his Republican supporters uh, this is diehard uh, you know, tri- trivia like that just doesn't enter into and, it. And I think the 
most important thing and, and because of the unpredictable nature of what's happening within politics in the UK, the most important thing now for Irish government and the European Commission is that they kind of have a, I suppose, a contingency plan well hammered out with lots of technical details in place. So, you know, if, for example, Irish business, which is, you know, who, who I represent, are very badly hit because of the political circumstances, that there are things like state aid uh, supports put in place and other measures to try and as a as a buffer against all of that well, impact. In, in terms of what the government should or could be doing then in, in the upcoming budget, uh, the, the editorial in the Business Post today, why we need a financial buffer, talks a little bit about this. And the rainy day fund is what they're talking about. And others have been talking about the Irish Fiscal Advisory Council talked about an even bigger rainy day fund. IBEC, not too long ago, talked about actually get rid of the rainy day fund and said invest that money in third level education. Am I right? Yeah, so so we didn't actually say get rid of the rainy day. We didn't fund. use that phrase. But <laughs> no, we didn't. But spend the money here. Um, so I, th- I think here's what everybody agrees on, which is the first point that prudence is needed, right? And I think if you look across the media today, you know, there's lots of debate around prudence, and that's very much what government the, the government approach in relation to to the budget. Um, it's not that prudent. So, so Still a deficit. You'd maybe so, be running a surplus by this year. So anyway, sorry. That, go on, we'll talk about this. That's first. an agreed strategy, and it's something that Minister Donoghue is very strong on, right? Where the debate is at is, what does that prudence look like? Okay, and that's where we get into the rainy day fund. So there's no question that a rainy day fund or whatever you want to call it, some kind of saving is a good thing. However, there's no point in just saving cash, right, or paying off debt. We actually have to put it into productive assets, right? So unless we're saving to be productive, there's very little point in a rainy day fund. So some of the debate in the media today talks about, you know, reducing debt or putting cash uh, aside. That just doesn't really make sense. So from a private sector position, we're looking around, there's huge private affluence in the economy right now. You just look around you, right? And, and you know, it, it, it's, it's so evident everywhere. And yet the problem is, is that that's not being matched by public infrastructure. And so there's, you know, people out there are being rationed, right? There's, you know, there's poor connectivity. There's, there, you know, poor road network, um, you know, serious pressures on obviously housing, which we'll get to later, um, and education. So one of the things that we're uh, talking about at the moment from um, a private sector perspective is, is that how do you get public infrastructure to match private affluence, right? And how do you channel some of that private private affluence back into the public sector? public infrastructure that we need, right? And that's so important for the future, particularly in the context of external threats such as Brexit. So one of the arguments we're making is, say, rather than this rainy day fund or whatever Mm. you want to brand it, that that be put into something like higher education. So you have a situation where universities are falling down the rankings, right? That's not good for the future economy or society indeed. So why don't we put some investment into higher education in Ireland? And that's something we did in the past very effectively. It was something that was core to our economic success, looking back to the 70s and 80s. Let's do that again. So there's no point in having a rainy day fund for the sake of saving. It actually has to be put into something that's going to future proof the economy. And that's really where the debate is at the moment. And so, uh, you know, it's it's quite nuanced, but it's extremely important. I'd agree with that, because what what would we use the rainy day fund if we had it when... Uh, when we had it back in 2010, like we would have made sure that we don't have a housing crisis. We have a housing crisis now, so why put money away when we actually have things to fix in capital expenditure? 
Well, it's about what prudence means, of course, uh, and it seems to mean different things to, to all sorts of different <laughs> people. But taking the, the education p- point that Siobhan has made quite correctly about third level, uh, we should invest a lot more in third level, but here's how I suggest the investment be funded. Uh, the people who get it should pay for it, that we should have third level fees. We should recognise that the decision taken in, in the mid-90s by Neve Brannock uh, for free fees across the board was fundamentally wrong. It overwhelmingly benefits people who are more privileged and better off that those who cannot reach third level it's not just a money issue it's a culture issue as well it requires a range of supports and what should be done for them is you should have much more intensive support and and grants than would have been there previously but basically third level education is a lifelong enhancement of your position and earning power it's a benefit paid for equally by all but only the benefit goes to the approximately just over half who go into third level. So third level fees, not publicly funded taxpayers' money, is the way to invest. All right, I would look, suggest. On that note, we have to take a quick break. Uh, Sinead, Siobhan and Jared are staying with me. Don't go anywhere. On the record. On News Talk. You are listening to On the Record. Kieran Goodhe with you until one o'clock. Sinead O'Carroll, news editor with the Journal.ie. Siobhan Masterson, head of corporate affairs at IBEC, and Jared Howland, Irish Examiner columnist, public affairs consultant, and former senior political advisor, all with me in studio. We turn our attention now uh, to a story about housing and Airbnb. It gets coverage in all the papers: Sunday Times, Business Post, Sunday Indo Mail, on Sunday. Um, and we'll start with the Sunday Times, their front page story: uh, Stephen O'Brien landlords face ban on Airbnb lets in Dublin. Uh, this is a According to Owen Murphy speaking at the Fine Gael Think In saying that he's going to bring forward regulation. I, I spoke about this with Ivan during the week. Essentially where we're at is that there was that Oireachtas Committee produced a report October last year. On the wake of it then there was a departmental working group which reported to the Minister in April of this year. That report has been sitting on his desk and now he's kind of it's been sitting on his desk because he didn't want to publish it until he was able to say exactly what regulations he'd be bringing in which is good politics you might say. Um, and, and it appears now he's look he's, he's started to talk about about regulating this. There are people, Sinead, who would say this is long overdue and when you look at the figures about, what, 12, 1,300 properties at any given moment at the moment generally to rent, say, in Dublin, if you look at Dublin as the particular pinch point and there's maybe, you know, over 3,000 entire homes or apartments to rent on Airbnb. And yeah. they say, look, it's, it just comes down to basic maths. And they, they say that, I think the figure is 47%, they say, are probably ones that are consistently in short-term rentals instead of, say, the home sharing, which Airbnb was set up to do. Like, you know, I'm going on holidays for two weeks, so I'm going to rent out my, my apartment for two weeks uh, to help me pay for that holiday. Um, so 47%, if there's 3,000, you know, it's a, it's a significant enough number that, yeah, a bit of regulation on it. And there's loads of anecdotal evidence of, you know, people passing apartments that used to be in the long-term rental market, but now have, you know, the key boxes out the front, so that people can come, collect the keys, stay for a couple of nights. And obviously the landlord does a lot better with it. Um, Owen Murphy has said he won't do what Toronto have done, which is put a 4% tax on any uh, short-term lettings. So that won't be included. What they're going to do is kind of try and bring Airbnb back to its original purpose so it's just home sharing it's it's people who have that free room in their in their house for a week or two a month and, and do it that way um, I, d- I don't think anybody is under the impression that this is going to fix anything but I think it will help say I was just saying Siobhan there will help say people like me who's who are in the rental market in Dublin find somewhere maybe a little bit quicker find something that's maybe a little bit of a higher spec um, and hopefully stop the rental 
prices just up like increasing um to the to the point they did like I spent six months of last year looking for an apartment to rent that's an an insane amount of time to try and find somewhere that will actually eventually be overpriced anyway but you have to just accept that so you're accepting the overpriceness of it you're accepting that it might not be as nice as what you wanted to live in when you're in your 30s um but that that was the difficulty was finding somewhere that was actually of a decent enough um spec that it wasn't dirty or it wasn't yeah. too small or it had no storage or that it wasn't like a, a kitchen converted into a kitchen come bedroom you know so um if even if it's a thousand properties that will help that Jared, Airbnb sometimes like gets a bit of a bad name and all mm. this. Like at its purest form, it is utilizing property in a way that uh, hadn't been done before, um, and to a degree that is beneficial to an economy. As in, oh. like there's a spare bed in this house if nobody's using it, rented no, out. Absolutely, and um, it, it was getting great publicity for a number of years before the tide turned. I suppose I, I think the, be- the you know the, co- the contribution regulating Airbnb can make to the housing crisis is very minimal. However, we need to look at places like Amsterdam and Barcelona, where, you know, tourism, mass tourism is so intense and the Airbnb phenomenon is an important part of that, that, you know, regulation in those places is is probably a real issue. In Dublin, I could really only think of Temple Bar. And certainly I know that down there. Oh, it's bigger than that. Ring's End, if you go down to Ring's End, there's a huge Airbnb proportion down there now as well. Perhaps. Uh, But at the same time, this is private property. Uh, and I don't think the state has a right to tell people what to do with their private property, frankly. Uh, now, if somebody wants to take a different tack on that, off with them. Uh, the issue of regulation is, is somewhat different. It's the extent to which, uh, because you need planning permission to change purpose for for a lot of buildings, a lot of time. So that's a different issue. So uh, r- regulation to, to, to control the number of nights uh, it can be done for is one thing, but telling people that they can't do this with their own private property that they paid for, uh, I, I think is fundamentally unfair. And I wonder, would it actually be constitutional? It, but it's a change of use if it's all the time, isn't it? Yes, and that's fine. Yeah. I know, I've abs- yes, and I've absolutely no problem with that being explored and dealt with. Uh, because it certainly is a problem uh, there in, in, in that in that area. Uh, the department as well would say, uh, Siobhan, that uh, part of the delay in actually regulating this is that it's not as simple as just saying, Owen Murphy, this is your job, because it's as a this is interdepartmental. The Department of Transport, Tourism and Sport as well would have a say in this. People who have B&Bs around the country as well might likely fall into kind of regulation if it was done ham-fistedly and um, you know it would it would bring in a lot of other people into the into this bracket that weren't intended to be Sure. I mean, I suppose there are a lot of um, conflicting interests here and it is complex. Um, I do agree with what Sinead said. It's it's only a drop in the ocean in terms of, you know, one part of the bigger debate on housing. According to Airbnb, be, they're 0.5% of the housing stock of the country and 0.16% of the uh, of the entire, if you look at entire units and entire yeah, apartments, it's yeah. 0.16. Yeah. So there are obviously huge pinch points in Temple Bar and Rings End and others. Yeah, and, and, but and nationwide, also, there's a housing crisis and sure, this doesn't sure. explain it in a lot of places. So, so a couple of points, right? First of all, we need to be careful that this doesn't, doesn't become a kind of an electioneering piece and, you know, it might be a small, you know, technical piece of regulation that's needed to try to to release more rooms onto the market. But actually, I would be concerned that this would 
become a big issue and seen as a kind of a political gain for Owen Murphy if he, if he deals with it effectively. The second point is, and just to come back to the figures, it's really important that they have the detail behind those figures. And actually, part of the difficulty is, is that Airbnb don't request a lot of data from the people who do rent out rooms. Or, so, so it's qu- quite difficult to regulate. So they do have to find this tipping point where if they do regulate Airbnb, that it's actually going to be effective. And then the third piece, just to come back to, to Jared's point, is that, you know, at the end of the day, Airbnb is a disruptor. Right. It's like a lot of the tech sector. Uh, governments are now trying to keep up with it. Dublin is not like other capital cities with huge tourism. Right. So we don't need the breadth of regulation that we've seen in those in those uh, cities. Um, and also, it's not just Airbnb. That's a platform. It's used for lots of different operators, not just private individuals, but also people operating in the tourism sector. And by the way, there are other platforms also doing same. So it's a much broader debate. And there is a case for a lot more detail um, to be looked at before any regulation is implemented. Sinead, there's a kind of a dissonance I was mentioning in the business post that they talk to various employers, business owners around the country who say that they can't find people to live in. Uh, they, they want to expand. We need 20 more staff, but there's nowhere to live. And they look at the amount of Airbnb units. And um, again, it is Airbnb, maybe as a little unfairly as Siobhan said, but it is Airbnb. Who's, it's the catch-all yeah, kind it's of the name. Yeah, it's the catch-all name that's given to these short-term rentals. rentals. Yeah. Uh, but the dissonance I mentioned is that they talk to people as well who work in the hospitality sector, who I'm sure a lot of their customers are those people staying in those Airbnb units. Yeah, and, and they do make that point. Actually, it's kind of interesting. Gillian Alice has gone down to Kinsale, which maybe you wouldn't kind of associate with the housing crisis or a crisis with Airbnb usage. But the people that they usually have over the summer to come and work in the various hospitality industries actually can't afford to Airbnb, stay Kinsale there. is the town that most represents the entire nation more than anywhere else in terms of all the CSO statistics if you if you look at town by town so th- so th- reflects Ireland so they're reflecting then what's happening here because they can't get the staff over because they can't afford or they can't it's not that they can't afford it's they can't find rental accommodation to live in because all of that rental accommodation is be- being used in Airbnb because as Jared says it actually makes more financial sense for the owners of those p- places to rent it out for two or three nights at 130 euro a night rather than for an entire week for for a lot less money so what what they're saying is, and Lee Edwards is quoted as saying, if I had to choose between having extra people in my bar and my staff being able to find somewhere to live, I'd choose the latter. And I suspect a lot of other business owners would too. So they are cognizant of the fact that they actually are getting extra people into the town because of Airbnb, but finding it difficult to so actually I feel get like staff. That's kind of weird. Like a business owner saying that I'd prefer have my staff somewhere to live than have any customers. Well, think about it. Like if you they wouldn't have any staff well, without yeah, the but customers. If, if you if you have to pay your staff, and this is why I always think it's very funny when people don't. Um, uh, when talk about like you know how if I I, have, I could afford my house so you should be able to if you're on minimum wage which a lot of people in the hospitality industry are on minimum wage it's ex- extremely difficult to find a rental apartment in Dublin on minimum wage so if you're working in the hospitality sector if you're an employer in the hospitality sector you either have to increase the wages of your staff to ensure that they can get into work on time because you're talking about irregular hours so you're not talking about normal bus routes that you can head out to Meath or Kildare or, or places where well actually it's not even that cheaper out there so so the, these employers are looking at right. If I if I can't find them rental accommodation that's cheap enough, then I have to pay them more. So that's the that's probably yeah. why they're okay with you know wanting to have 
rental accommodation available rather than more people in the bar. And, and it, sorry, just to say, it comes back to the, the kind of short termism around the budget debate as well. This is why these capacity constraints and it's not just, you know, facing business, but also society in general, these kind of quality of life issues are the biggest challenge for the domestic economy at the moment. And so this idea of putting aside cash and not investing in connectivity and public in- infrastructure is just ludicrous in the context of this kind of debate. Jared, and housing, by the way, is housing. linked to transport because without a transport come land use policy, you've sure. no housing policy. Who, who is going to work in all these hotels? Every single building that's going up in Ireland, in Dublin at the moment, is either student accommodation, um, which is obviously for foreign students, or because it's about 250 quid a week, which, you know, you're not getting paid. People coming up from Galway and Cork aren't paying that. Um, or hotels. Who is going to work in these hotels for minimum wage? And where like, where are they going to live? And if they're going to get to work at six o'clock in the morning to do whatever jobs they need to do in 24-hour serviced hotels, it's absolutely bonkers. All those students, foreign students around the world who are listening to this show uh, via the app, uh, there's plenty of jobs in hotels. It's what Sinead is saying when you get here. Uh, look, just before we take a break, uh, electioneering, Siobhan, you mentioned that and hopefully this not getting kind of sucked into being an election issue. I don't think it will because it's obviously in when it comes to housing, the election issue, Jared, is can posh people solve the housing crisis? Well, God bless the posh people. <laughs> um, this is all about old Murphy and he's a posh boy and he has no empathy and he doesn't understand and he's never lived the life and all the rest. Um, look, this comes from within Fine Gael. This is the origin of this particular piece of nastiness about him from his own closest colleagues. It is always thus, by the way, so we shouldn't be even mildly surprised <laughs> by that. It's a continuation of the Boris story we were speaking of, of, of earlier. It's also, you know, in relation to, to Leo, uh, you know, before he, uh, Leo Varadkar, before he came out, it wasn't totally unknown that that mm-hmm. might be a possibility. And, uh, you know, some of his colleagues were, were less than complimentary. And it goes back, you know, donkeys years ago when Bertie Ahern and one of his ministerial co- colleagues asked well we need to know where the theatre speaks at night so there's various forms of nastiness that always comes from those closest but particularly in relation to the old Murphy issue about that, that, that he's posh he should be grateful for this story by the way because it is a distraction from issues that people really care about uh, so it's, we're talking about it, but nobody would pay the blindest bit of bother or attention to it when it comes to them making serious political decisions about whether they think he's delivered or not. Yeah, Lynn Ruan actually uh, tweeting this morning, the senator, more commentary lately on reverse snobbery than actual snobbery. Uh, people are shamed every day for various reasons. Uh, reverse racism, reverse gender equality, reverse sexism. They're all handy ways to but divert. Now, but let's just stick to Lynn, right? Yeah. Who, who I met and I know and I'm very admiring of. Politics is about storytelling. Uh, it, it's about explaining, you know, the issues as you see them, explaining what you think should happen and how we can believe in, 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 in this. And Lynn Ruan has been a very successful storyteller. And I mean that in a positive way about her own story and her own life. So she, you know, has used her life uh, as basically as a political platform, which she's perfectly entitled to do. So I, I just wonder where, you know, the reverse stuff comes from, because she has sailed very far, very quickly. Uh, on the basis of her own projection of her own story. Yeah, I, th- I have actually heard the posh boy, the this 
that it's a dumb insult if, if it is being used but I actually haven't heard it I think Jared's right like I haven't actually heard it that much D- Dara O'Brien when he first became housing spokesperson for Fianna Fáil did it but that's a long time it's ago now It's broken into the media recently yeah. but it was certainly on the lips of people uh, prior to that It's an incredibly that. stupid insult like if he's, he, if he's good enough at his job he's good enough at his job to bring it you can, you can hammer him about uh, numbers you can hammer him about any yeah. problems p- with his job don't hammer him no, about his background I, I, ex- I, ex- I accept that Sinead, but if you go back to, to, to Fine Gael and you look at the vote in 2016 and you look where they got the vote they you know have a much smaller working class vote than any other party comparably they're much stronger in the middle class and the upper middle class so there is a political reality to the political personality of Fine Gael yeah, so as being look- more based among the more wealthy yeah so and if you're looking at politically then the optics of it it might not have been the smartest choice to put Owen Murphy there and maybe he hasn't shown now that he despite the optics of it was the correct choice to put into the housing mm. ministry so you can look at it polit- politically like that um, but I think consistently bringing it back to he can't fix the housing situation because he's from Dublin 4 is just a silly argument. Well look we'll get back to some of these silly arguments after this quick break. On the record on News Talk. You are listening to On the Record, Kieran Cudahy with you until one o'clock. Sinead O'Carroll, Siobhan Masterson, and Jared Howland are still with me in studio. And Jared, before the break, we were just chatting, I suppose, a little bit around the, the possibility of a general election. Uh, and there's uh, talk of that uh, in the papers and Leo v. Martin and when they, who might pull down the government and when a little bit of that. Um, in the Business Post, particularly on page 18, Mary, Ra- Mary Regan writing Ooh. about it, that they're playing a game of election chicken. Ivan has a theory. Do you want to hear it? They're not, oh. They don't often bear fruit. But anyway, I'll share it with you. There'll be a fudge in November for Brexit and then that gives you a four-month window then to go to the people before the realities actually kick in in March. All of that is possible, but there's something missing in all this coverage, including Ivan's theory, (gasps) which is, of course, it's all about the national situation. But in fact, our general election will be in uh, 163 seats for in 39 constituencies. And the reality for Fine Gael, which has the option of pulling the plug if it wants, is that it is not where it needs to be in several key constituencies to win the seats it must win if it is to be near or north of 60 seats in the next all, which is its strategic objective. It's, for example, coverage in, in newspaper today, the column, the Gooch Cooper, uh, is not going to stand for Fine Gael and Kerry. Fine. Fine Gael have one seat in Kerry. They had uh, one in each of two three-seaters. It's now a five-seater. Mm. So where is the second Fine Gael seat in, in Kerry coming from? As of today, they don't have that plan in place. If you look at Longford, Westmead, they do have a new candidate in, in place in, in, in the Longford end, end, end of the constituency, Micheál Carrigy, but he's just on the ticket. He's not oven ready just yet. And and by the way, that seat would be one, I think, where the Willie Penrose seat, he's retiring yeah. from Labour. I, I don't see Labour holding that seat. And it will probably, between Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael, the key swing seat. And Fine Gael, it just hasn't put in the time yet uh, around its, its its new candidates. If you look at Leo Varadkar's own constituency, it has just put Emma Curry on the ticket. And you could go on and on through 39 constituencies and where Fine Gael lost seats was generally outside of Dublin, where it could gain seats is usually outside of Dublin and it's just not ready in, in a lot of these key places. So you can look at all the national issues and all the poll numbers, but unless you can deliver votes in the box and Ballygo backward for Tom or Mary Muck 
who is your candidate, you can forget about calling a general election prematurely. You see, Gerald, I don't know, maybe it says something wrong about me, but when you start doing the, all that constituency listing, I get very excited. I, <laughs> can't, I can't wait for a general election till we get into all of this. Uh, Siobhan, I, I mentioned at the start the front page stories, and I wanted to ask you before we run out of time about uh, foreign direct investment and, and, and Trump, because uh, Dervin MacDonald has an exclusive interview, as you said, with one of Trump's uh, chief economic advisors. We will not suck factories out of Ireland. Uh, and there's a bit of coverage as well about FDI. Martin Shanahan inside the Business Post uh, saying that the idea that we're over-reliant on it uh, is a misunderstanding of its role in our economy. How big of an issue is the possibility of it leaving? Or is Martin Shanahan right that actually, look, at all of this is a little overblown? Yeah, look, uh, in fairness to Martin, he has a role to try and kind of stabilise, you know, FDI in Ireland. So, you know, he would put out a particular narrative and that's not a narrative that um, IBEC would disagree with at all. Um, I suppose going back to Derville MacDonald's um, interview, Kevin Hassett is in in Dublin this week for for a conference. Um, He's the chairman of the Council of Economic Advisors in the US. He's very, very influential in terms of Trump policy, right? So this week actually with him in Ireland is very important and he'll have a whole series of engagements um, with both Irish politics and and business. So that's that's critical. Um, Look, I think the fundamental point that's missing in all of this is is that US companies need a base in Europe, right? And actually, in the context of Brexit, Ireland is an even stronger position than than formerly, right? So so that's one of the benefits, I guess, you know, if there are any. Um, There's certainly... I suppose, a lack of debate on this issue publicly within the business community, because I suppose there's a nervousness with US companies to talk about investment and and jobs in Ireland and, and what's happening here. And that's deliberate. I don't think it's as big an issue as it's made out to be. Um, that said, there's an unpredictability um, over in the US and it's something that's monitored very, very carefully. All right. Look, uh, it's something that we we do talk about and we have talked about. We'll talk about again. Uh, Just before we run out of time as well, Sinead, I know you want to share with all our listeners the way Anne Downey's team are going to (laughs) regain the uh, All-Ireland Camogie title this afternoon. Just in case anyone doesn't know about Kieran's Kilkenny bias there. uh, No bias (laughs) I don't think it's going to be as straightforward as as that at all. Obviously, Cork and Kilkenny is the third year in a row that we have the same final. Um, And in some ways, it does feel like a kind of best out of three. You know, Kilkenny won two years ago. Court got it back last year against kind of a lot of expectation. Um, I see, see Eamon Sweeney in the back page of uh, the Sunday Independent is going for a draw, and I'm I was kind of like, mm, yeah, maybe that that is it. It's going to be incredibly tight. The two teams know each other really, really well. There's no love lost uh, between them. Or no, there's quite a bit of animosity is built up. They play so the, the last three all well, including this, then the last three all Irelands, and then league finals as league well. League finals, and obviously the, the girls know each other so well. There'd, there'd be college competitions that they'd have grown up playing against each other against and you know we've had obviously there was that infamous handshake between Hannah Looney and, and Colette Dormer a couple of years ago with there's a little argy-bargy and uh, then last year you had you know Paddy Murray naming the team without Gemma O'Connor that, that kind of silly stuff as well has all added up uh, to it and then like the league final this year um, you know Cork going Kilkenny going eight points ahead and you know Cork and nearly to, thrown to it away back. oh yeah and completely almost thrown it away so you know there's lots of stories there Um Hopefully it'll be, Camogie really needs a, a good match. And I, I hate saying that about finals because it's a pressure that's often put onto women's sport that isn't put onto men's sport because it is the only time of the year that we really get a decent audience. And um, so we'll talk be, about that in a sec. In terms of this match being good, though, 
They're often not. They're often not. In Cork, it I mean, by Cork and Kilkenny, like yeah. in these two teams, they're kind of dogged affairs. They're two defensive teams, a little bit less so this year than than they have been the last couple of years. But they are two d- defensive enough teams, and just because of that, uh, I'm trying to avoid the word animosity, but I guess that little bit of animosity, and because I think the girls will be looking at it as if a best out of three, really, like we're one piece now. Which of us is the better team? Mm-hmm. And there's been a lot of changes, especially in Cork, um, and there's. There's a couple of good stories though as well. Breach Corkery is back. Um, she came off the bench in the semi-final. Julia White, obviously, who scored the winner in last year's game, is back and kind of rearing after her really bad injuries. And she was saying, you know, she wanted more time last year and uh, to see what she can do this year. There's been a great spread of scores, uh, scores from both teams. Um, so yeah, I'm not sure we will have kind of a, a great affair, but even if it's a close affair, I think that that will. That will help. In terms of the attention it's getting, I noticed in one of the papers today has a big pullout looking back on the hurling year, which I was a little surprised <laughs> by given that there's an actual All-Ireland in a different cold uh, on today. Yeah, and I, I think Camogie probably has lost uh, a little bit in the battle this year just because there's so much excitement in the football and we have been um, kind of second fiddle. I say we because I, I, I am a Camogie player, but we, we've been second fiddle a little bit to the football because there's kind of more interesting stories, obviously, with what's happening with Mayo and, and all of that and, and also with the hockey so uh, you, you know there's only so much love for women's sport every year that goes around and you know that that's that's par for the course but we do have to do our bit as well to make sure that uh, we're we're getting the sport out there and that the sport is good enough unfortunately the sport this year has been really Cork and Kilkenny have got to the final pretty easily there haven't mm. been that many competitive matches um, there's been a few good things along the way Waterford Kilkenny really probably been tested more than Cork a little bit more yeah Cork's like, advantage over most of their games has been yeah. fairly significant significant um, but there have been some good things like Waterford have had their first year up and and have done really well and um, but and, and getting to quarterfinals and stuff but it's still not um, they're still not up at the same level as the Corks and Kilkenny's All right quarter past four I think is throwing isn't it uh, yeah, this afternoon three games today so actually interesting Kerry are in the uh, Premier Junior final so oh, Kerry, a, a Kerry hurling team in Cork Park is, is always a good one so oh. if you want to get in early that's the first game against Dublin and then Cork in the intermediate against Down and Kilkenny and Cork in the final Yeah and look Sinead's wrong we're not biased at all we just wish Kilkenny the absolute <laughs> best of luck uh, this <laughs> afternoon <laughs> from a quarter past four <laughs> in Croke Park uh, look uh, I should mention as well uh, uh, we were speaking a mention of US President Donald Trump earlier. Former US President Bill Clinton has sat down for an exclusive interview with News Talk's Pat Kenny. Uh, he was over for a concern event in Dublin a couple of days ago, an annual conference that they were holding. So you can tune into that from tomorrow morning. or at tom- uh, You can tune in tomorrow morning on the Pat Kenny show from nine o'clock, I should say. Uh, that is all we have time for for this part of the show. On the record, uh, Sinead O'Carroll, news editor with the journal.ie, Siobhan Masterson, head of corporate affairs at IBEC, and Jared Howland, Irish examiner, column public affairs consultant and former senior political advisor thank you all very much uh, for coming in still to come on the show we're going to be looking back in time Black 47 obviously is out a lot of talk about the Irish famine we'll be busting a few myths around it uh, we will be looking ahead to all the other weekend sport sporting action uh, we mentioned the camogie but uh, plenty of other stuff happening as well the NFL is back this weekend as well the looming shadow of Colin Kaepernick uh, Ger Gilroy uh, from OTB AM who presents as well uh, off the balls NFL show is going to be in to chat about that and before that as well Bobby Duffy uh, from Ipsos Mori he's after writing a great book The Perils of Perception Why We're Wrong About Almost Everything he's going to be joining me in just a few minutes time stay with us On the Record On, the record. on News Talk 